Peter, starting in verse 14. Peter speaking to a struggling people in Asia Minor in the first century. Said, says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is, the return of Christ and a new heavens and a new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Grass withers, flowers fade. You and I come and go. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it's the best-selling book in history. It is a source of much discussion, debate, yes, even rancor. It has extraordinary counts of war, betrayal, murder, drama, sex, good guys winning over the bad guys, all the stuff that we go to the movies to see. It is something Christians cling to for the hope, life, even for truth. And, of course, I'm talking about the Bible. Now, we live in a time and a place, yes, even here in the Bible Belt, where the Bible is appreciated and even revered. Yet, I have to tell you, we don't live in a time where the Bible is believed. That is, it's practiced, and people even bank their lives on it doing what it says. In fact, for all the appreciation and popularity of the most popular book In history, there are many questions, even cynical questions, about whether it's believable or not. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Recently, the Discovery Channel has put out a series of documentaries saying things like the gospel, uh, there were some gospels left out of the Bible, things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary. Books like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code try to make a case that the church throughout history has actually kept some uh, writings out of the Bible because they said scandalous things like Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene. Indeed, the venerable Time magazine has been so, uh, uh, so enamored by the Bible that it has actually been on the front cover along with Jesus, no less than 15 times since 1971. In fact, in 1974 and and 1995, Time magazine dared to ask what everybody really wonders about the Bible. Is it true? Is it really true? Today, we're going to conclude our series on 2 Peter And I'm going to do a pastoral sermon today on what really amounts to the veracity, that is the believability, the truth of the canon of Scripture. And the reason is very simple. From 2 Peter 1 to 2 Peter 3, Peter has been talking about the truth of God's word in this running thread throughout throughout this book. 
And the running thread shows up in, in the language he uses of the promises of Scripture or remember, that is the truth. Uh, he also talks about the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. And he talks about all of this in this book in contrast to what was showing up in the first century church, false teaching. Skeptics who were saying things like, well, Peter and Paul said this, but this is the real truth. Skeptics who would say things like, well, you've heard Jesus coming back, but come on, is that plausible? It's been a while. Hello? So, uh, out of this running thread throughout the book of Second Peter, Paul brings up which is really a running question that he's addressing throughout the book that even the early Christians struggle with in the face of a lot of hardship. And it was this, should we really trust the Bible? And more specifically, why should we trust this Bible right here? All 66 books that we find in this particular Bible. And today we're going to explore these questions together by way of review and then exploring our current text. And the review uh, comes out of our uh, text that we hit a while back in First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Turn with me back to Second Peter. And you might remember we looked at this text uh, sometime back. And it is absolutely relevant in dealing with the, the authority of Scripture. Christians believe this, that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Uh, scripture, in other words, has the final say on what is true about God, about us, about us and God, and God's grander purposes for the world, even our grander purpose in God's world. That's what we believe as Christians. And why do we say that it's the final authority in all matters of faith and practice? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter, he says uh, in verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophet's word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just a real quick review. What we said sometime back from this text is the authority of Scripture is based on three basic things that Peter talks about here. The first is it is not a bunch of myths, made up stories just to inspire us or to coerce people into doing something in a kind of group think. No, it's truth. Historic eyewitness accounts of what has happened in real history, particularly around Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, he talks about these prophetic promises that come throughout Scripture that were given decades, uh, even uh, centuries, even millennia before Jesus came. All these promises were made about him and were fulfilled in him and even beyond him in, throughout the New Testament in the church. The, those promises are further proof, in other words, that God uh, can speak with authority. Third, we find in verse 21 of our text, this amazing text that says, Scripture was not produced by the will of man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit carrying men 
uh, along. In other words, they, men were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspires Scripture in men so that men spoke truthfully on God's behalf. This argument from Peter goes to the authority question that was showing up throughout the church. Why should we believe the Bible? I mean, why should I even uh, trust it at all? And that's because he's promoting this idea of a really a Reformation doctrine called sola scriptura. That scripture is ultimately the final authority. Now, there are other authorities of truth, like experience, like uh, uh, science and things like that. But the ultimate truth about God and what he wants of us comes from Scripture itself. Now, of course, the big question around that is why, why would that be the case? Well, the, the, the real argument for Peter that he implies in this text is that you have all these eyewitness accounts about God and what he's done in history and real experiences of real people with God over thousands of years being recorded. And in the end, we find they are saying the same thing from Genesis to Revelation. All kinds of different authors and prophets living in different times and places. Even apostles speak of the same thing over and over again, implicitly or explicitly. They speak of Christ. They speak of the coming Christ, even the Christ who has come and who will come again in history. I mean, think about this. It, it, and think about it from a legal point of view. If something happens and no one witnesses it and you have to go to court, well, there's no way you can really prove it happened, right? But if something happens and there's one witness, well, that's pretty extraordinary proof that you can use in court and is persuasive. But what if you have a bunch of witnesses like a whole lot of witnesses, writing down their experience with God, their knowledge of God, and even telling us what God himself says, as he did folks like Abraham and Moses. Then, if you have all these witnesses and they have a common story called the gospel showing up throughout all of Scripture, then you might want to take the Bible seriously. For it is a sequence of historic eyewitness accounts Recorded and pointing to this main message about Christ, the one who saves, the one who redeems. And it not only redeems us as people, but will one day even come back and redeem the world. This is what Peter is really driving home. But this brings us to our next, or really our text in Second Peter 3 uh, that we've been looking at. Turn back to Second Peter 3 now. Whoops. I hope I don't need, need that. Do I need that? Yes, I do. This brings us to our second text in 2 Peter 3. And here's what he says. In sec, uh, Peter's been talking at length about Jesus coming back in his second coming. And uh, he's going to come back and establish a new heavens and a new earth. But what basis does Peter build his case on to make this, to make this case? Look at verse 14. Uh, he says, excuse me, verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
Do you notice how Peter is making this argument? Jesus is coming back, setting up a new heavens, new earth. You need to change the way you live. And then he says, really, the big reason why Paul agrees with me. The apostle Paul actually agrees with what I say. Peter's teaching, in other words, lines up with Paul's teaching. And Paul's teaching lines up with Peter's teaching. He's saying, hey, we're teaching the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. Jesus is going to come back. And it's going to change everything. Now, here's three reasons that he highlights in this text of why we should trust Paul's teaching. He says he associates with Paul as teaching the truth. He calls him a beloved brother in Christ. He associates himself as an apostle with Peter as an apostle. And he says Peter gets the, excuse me, Paul gets his wisdom from another place. Wisdom given to him is what he says. In other words, Peter and Paul admit they don't have wisdom themselves from God. They have to receive it from God in inspiration. Now, I might add, when you meet a cult leader, cult leaders almost always say, I am the source of truth. L. Ron Hubbard would be a great example of this. But biblical Christianity says Jesus is the source of truth. I'm just the messenger. Next, in verse 16, Peter defends Paul against false teachers. Those who trust the gospel, excuse me, those who twist the gospel. And the false teachers at the time, they were twisting the gospel to make money, to get fame and fortune, to make their life easy. And so they promoted ease of life for other people. The third thing Peter does to kind of highlight Paul's teaching is he says a really shocking thing. Look at the end of verse 16. Look at what this says. This is amazing. There are some things in them, that is what Paul writes, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Did you catch that? Peter, the apostle who followed Jesus around, calls Paul the once oppressor of Christians who, who, who converted to Christianity and started preaching the gospel with Peter, man who writes scripture. He calls him a man who writes scripture. Now, I looked up this word in the Greek and scripture and how it's used in the New Testament. It's very simple. Every time it's used, it is used always as pointing to authoritative writings that come from God. Via the Old Testament and even through the apostles. Clearly, Peter is saying that Paul is on par with him in authority, in writing on behalf of God and writing for God. And why is this important? Why is this important for us? Well, because today, popularized and sensationalized academics in our culture and in our time are saying you can't really trust Peter or Paul. In fact, in some cases, they'll say Peter and Paul have two different messages. And when they say that, or when you hear that, you can always point to this verse and say, I don't think that's the way Peter understood it. Peter actually said, we're teaching the same thing, the gospel. In fact, I'll tell you, it shows up in uh, not all academics teach this, even those who teach the Bible, but some in some of our universities, like Bart Ehrman up here in University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, even a guy, a Tabor over here in UNCC, are teaching that you can't really trust what the apostles wrote. 
Because there are other scriptures they're holding out on. Or really, they're just not people who are believable in the end. But in the end, what Peter is saying, no, no, no. We have a common message. Jesus has come and Jesus is coming back. Now that brings us to another question. Why trust these particular prophets and apostles in the Bible? Why trust the writings of these men? I mean... Uh, What about uh, other people that speak for God? Uh, These are questionable characters. I mean, if you think about the people who wrote Scripture, like Moses, like David, like uh, Paul, they have, you know what they all have in common, right? They were all murderers. Would you listen to a murderer? We might add that they were redeemed murderers, forgiven in the blood of Christ and radically altered by God's grace. So can we believe them? Well, I'd give you three highlights here to consider about God himself, that it really comes from the gospel, and that's this. Our God speaks. Our God is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer says. He speaks because he is a living and relational God who engages us personally through the Spirit and speaking through his word in Scripture. Our God speaks in that way. In fact, if you think about it, Scripture is packed with all this language of God said, God said, the Lord said, God said. There is this divine sense to Scripture that it dares to make the claim that God is speaking through those words. Well, God in His grace speaks to us so we can know Him. But there's something even greater to consider. When it comes to God's Word, God has not only spoken to us, The Word has shown up personally in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Word, became flesh, dwelt among us in all His glory in history, in time and space. Like you and I live in this world now, He has dwelled in our time and space 2,000 years ago. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is He came came, um, reaffirming or really affirming the authority of the Old Testament. He spoke the word and its authority and spoke with authority as one who brought the very word of God. Now, many teachers in history will say things like this. Teachers in history like Confucius and Buddha, even Muhammad, they will say there is the way, there is truth, there is life. Go get it. But here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus has the gall as the word become flesh to say, I am the way. I am truth. I am life. I am the one who can give you what you need in the deepest recesses of your soul. Christ is God's word. He's the ultimate prophet speaking towards us with words of encouragement, words of challenge. Words of hope. And so Jesus is the word become flesh. But God not only has spoken and God has spoken through his son as the word himself. But third, Christ not only spoke through the word, but he also called men to speak on his behalf. That's what the prophets and the apostles were about. He chose 12 men and then Paul to speak for him and to articulate the gospel. And just so you're clear, 
What we believe as Christians is not just anybody can speak for God. They have to have the call of God to speak for him in a unique role as a prophet, big P or apostle, big A. But also they have to have seen the resurrected Christ, particularly in New Testament writings. The qualifications for someone who is going to be an apostle preaching the gospel with the authority of Christ is that you have to have seen the resurrection. Ephesians 2.20 alludes to this important concept that God has not only spoken uh, himself to people like Abraham and Moses personally, you know, a real audible voice, but he's spoken to and through prophets and apostles who wrote down his thoughts through inspiration for us. Ephesians 2.20 says that uh, the church is... Uh, is um, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the ultimate cornerstone. So, what is the church built on? Is it built on uh, a great vision? No. Nah. Is the church built on uh, really effective programs? Is the church built on really swell pastors, great guys? No. Is the church built on even super talented preachers and teachers who just wow you? Nope. It's built on the Word. The Word of Christ, the Gospel. Very important to understand because one of these days, and I'm not in a hurry to leave, I will leave. Will this church lose something when I leave? Maybe a little something. You actually might gain a lot. But if the word, if this church is built on the word of God, the next guy comes in, he preaches the word along with the staff and the elders and deacons of this church. He leaves the next guy, and you keep going, bringing the gospel again and again. It's built on what Jesus said, not on a man. Let's keep going. What do we do with this word that these guys are doing? What's the so what behind this? These these, uh, apostles and prophets given by Christ preach to us, and they preach for one reason, to change to change us, to call us to a new life. Every time God speaks in Scripture, you know what's interesting about it? Things change when he talks. When God's word goes out, things get stirred up. God spoke, the world was created. God spoke, and Israel was totally delivered a million people out from the most powerful nation in the world in an extraordinary way. God spoke, and his son came into our world. Jesus spoke and changed lives. Jesus spoke and stirred up lives. Jesus spoke, and it changed things. You see, when God's word goes out, it's meant to make us just a wee bit uncomfortable and call us to change. I was reading Triple E, the Christian rapper, uh, his blog yesterday, and he had this great kind of analogy. He said he was talking about the Word of God. 
and how it affects us. He said, you know, if a stranger comes up to you and uh, says, hey, I want to borrow the keys to your car. I got to get something. Can I have your keys? What are you going to say when a stranger comes up? You say, no way, I'm not giving you my keys. I don't trust you. I don't know you. But if someone you know, like your, uh, your wife, or in case of my, our case in our family, my son or my daughter comes up and says, I need the keys to use the car. Can I go? What will I say? Of course you can. Here are the keys. Go, go do it. I know you. I trust you. You see, because I had that relational connection, I responded to their request. Now, let me ask you, what if God were to come to you and call you to act? If God comes to you and calls you to act and you don't act, that doesn't say much. That says a far more rather about you than it does about God. God's word calls us to action. We're called to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Hello, reform people. We get the word in our heads. We do our Bible studies galore. What are you doing to respond to that word that Jesus has given you? So we're getting at the answer here of why we trust the Bible, even this Bible right here. And that brings us to another question. Why trust this version of the Bible with its 66 books, its 39 books of the Old Testament, and its 27 in the New? Why this one in particular? Why not trust the Greek Apocrypha that's in the Catholic Bible? Why not trust those Gnostic Gospels from the second century, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter? Why not trust those? And here's the real question that a lot of us ask. You ready? Why are we even bothering with the Old Testament? I mean, it's all that kind of hard stuff to read. And let's just focus on the New Testament and on Paul and all that grace stuff, you know? And then there's yet another question. Why should we even trust this Bible? It is like two or 3,000 years old. Can't there be a lot of corruption and things that happen in that time with the Bible? I mean, how do we know we even actually have the real Bible? Well, let's address some of these questions. Let's address some. And first, let's, ad- put, let's address why we put the Old Testament and New Testament together. There was a heretic named Marcion in the first few centuries of the church. And here's what he suggests. He said, bag the Old Testament, tired of that God, that raging God in the Old Testament. Let's deal with the God of grace, and particularly with Paul's letters where he talks about the grace of God, because he gets grace. That's what Marcion would say. Problem was, Marcion was called a heretic because he was just truncating so much of who God is and what the gospel actually is by truncating the gospel itself. And the reason that we keep the Old and New Testament together is really simple. Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament with authority. Jesus loved the Old Testament. Not only that, Paul quotes the Old Testament all the time. Paul understood that the Old Testament was crucial to understanding the New Testament. You see, they didn't want to give in to functional Marcionism. You know what functional Marcionism is? I read little sections of Scripture and I just focus on those. I don't deal with the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Beware of functional Marcionism. 
It shows up in the church in many ways. What about the problem of corruption in the Bible? How do we know we can trust what's here? Well, do you know that I'm going to give you some numbers here. There's 25,049. Did you know there are 25,000 manuscripts for the Old and New Testaments that we have available to us? 25,000. Have you ever heard of Aristotle, the great philosopher, Greek philosopher? Do you know how many uh, manuscripts, uh, ancient manuscripts we have of Aristotle? 49. Consider this, the dates between the original writings and the copies we have, the earliest copies we have, that is. Well, the dates between the original writings of the New Testament from the apostles and the actual, um, the actual manuscripts we have is a roughly 50 years. Do you know what the earliest manuscript dating of Aristotle's work is between when he wrote them and what uh, manuscripts we have now? 1,100 years. And the real funny thing is nobody's asking questions about Aristotle's uh, manuscripts. They're asking and making all these claims about the Bible because they're threatened by it. Did you know that the New Testament and the Old Testament manuscripts are rather accurate when you compare them together and the thousands of them that we have? Remember, back in those days, they didn't have laser printers. They didn't have copy machines. They just copied things by hand. Now, are there mistakes and inconsistencies in some of the manuscripts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean if you've got 25,000 copies of something, I think you can kind of get the gist of what the point is from that. And I want to tell you something about the Old Testament. Let me tell you how well copied the Old Testament was. When I studied the Hebrew Bible in seminary, I'd read through it. And you know what I'd find? In the Hebrew Bible, as you read through on the side, beside the scripture, are these little letters all the way through. And you wonder, what are these letters here for? And you know what they are? They're numbers in Hebrew. And what would happen is a copyist would copy the actual text from one manuscript to another, and then an editor would come back and count every letter all the way through the book, all the way through the Old Testament, every word all the way through the Old Testament. And if there was one letter off, one word off, they tore it up. Talk about reliable. And that's indeed what we're finding in things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, we can trust the 66 books of the canon. And we can trust them because they inherently say, trust me. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. It speaks of itself that way. Our text in 2 Peter 1 talks about how God carried along men to speak on his behalf. Internally. The Bible says, trust me. Now, somebody will say, oh, wait a minute, that's a circular argument. You're saying, trust the Bible because the Bible says, trust me. That's a circular argument, isn't it? And I'm saying, well, actually, if the Bible claims to be the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, nothing can judge the Bible. You have to come to grips with whether you believe it or not. The second thing I'd tell you about the Bible and its trustworthiness is that 
the Bible's 66 books have not only been affirmed from within the scriptures, but also by the church. And I love, you remember uh, Mike Kruger who came a month ago? Mike's written a great book on this. It's really helped the church. And he says, he has a great illustration for this. To understand how we authenticate scripture, you've got to understand it's both self-authenticating and the church affirming that authentication. It's kind of like, in other words, a thermostat and a thermometer at your house. The thermostat is God's inspiration, giving us the word, in that it sets what the truth is supposed to be. But the thermos, the thermometer, reflects that and works alongside the thermostat to affirm what the temperature is supposed to be. That's what we believe about Scripture. And as a result, we can bank our lives on this. This is the case that Peter is making in Second Peter, is that you can trust that this is truth, true truth from God himself. God has spoken, Christ has spoken through these words. And so I give us three final applications, real briefly. And the first is this, that goes with this word and how we can carry it out in our lives. If you really don't believe in absolute truth, even coming from something like Scripture, i got to tell you what G.K. Chesterton said. He said a really wise thing. The problem is when you don't have an absolute truth, something that kind of dictates final truth to all things, then the problem is not that people don't believe in anything. The problem is people believe in everything. Second, are you longing for comfort in life? Are you longing for answers to your spiritual questions? Are you struggling with that sense of guilt that won't go away because you know how broken you are? And are you tired of being tossed around by the latest ideas in our world and especially pop culture and the next big thing? Listen to God speak in His written word. Listen to God speak in the power of the Spirit as He points you to Christ, the cornerstone of life and the church. Christ came in the world to lead us with words. He's chosen to use this weird, weird way to lead us. Words. Because words matter. Third, for believers who are struggling with waiting on God and waiting on Jesus to return, you should listen to Peter's exhortation at the end. Prepare for the coming. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by getting into the Word. I st this Earlier this year, we started as a church going through the Scriptures in two years, all the Bible. That's a great way to kind of immerse yourself in the Bible and to think about what God says and to think God's thoughts after Him. Rest on the promises. Find what those promises are and live your life like they're true because God backs them up. The Word of God speaks into our lives. We sang that earlier. How is it changing you as it speaks? In conclusion... When my kids were small, uh, we were riding in the mountains on vacation one time, and and the kids were in the back seat. We were in a they were 
they were listening to a tape on the, uh, on the car tape recorder. And it was, it was this book on tape about how this um, boat was coming in and didn't have um, a lighthouse to come into port with. And as a result, it's bashing against the rocks. Meanwhile, while this is going on, I kid you not, we are riding through some serious fog up in the mountains um, near Blowing Rock, or actually near um, Grandfather Mountain. And we can't see where we're going. It's so thick that I'm just straining at the will to see, and I have pretty good eyesight. I just can't see anything. So I see a fork in the road coming up, and there are signs there, but I can't really see them. I'm like, ah, they're no use. I think it's this way. And so we go up to the right on the fork of the road. And we start going up, up a mountain. And we're not stopping going up. The car's starting to struggle. Meanwhile, this tape's going on on the background. You know, this thing is bashing against the rocks, this boat. And I look to the left of our car, and I kid you not, it is a cliff straight down. The kids are on the, looking on the right and say, Dad, there's not much happening over here. There's nothing over here. We're going up a serious mountain. And it's still foggy and getting worse. We have no idea where we are. And I realize we're lost. So I stopped the car after we basically can't go anymore up this mountain with, this, with our car. I turn around and start going down. And sure enough, at the bottom of the hill, I found those signs that I had ignored earlier that said, Hey, if you want to go the way you were intending, go that way. And so we followed the signs, even through the fog, and carefully watched those signs to make our way home through some intense fog. Guys, that's what God's Word is for us. It is the sign in the fog of life saying, go this way, follow Christ. His 66 books in this Bible are reliable, enough to bank your life on now Go and follow him with it. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you speak to us. and You speak your word and your life to us. Now we ask you to give us life through your word. Speak to us in a way that we can know you. That you are revealed. And we are revealed. And we can know the way to follow you even through the many foggy times in our lives. Praise your name, Lord that you have spoken and you're a living God. And we ask you to make our body more and more lovers of your word and doers of your word. We ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen.